one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. This is Shocking Space episode 537 for the week of Monday, November 25th, 2013, Thanksgiving week in the United States. Um, Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Welcome. Thanks for the welcome, and boy, do we have a feast of news to go ahead and explore, so I'm looking forward to it. Me too, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Let's get right into space news. How about that? And uh, let's get right into the first saga, and that would be the SpaceX launch of SES-8, which was scheduled for today's recording date, November 25th. But did it go, Gene? Thank you, Sawyer. Uh, Not quite there, Sparky. Um, SES-8 is still on the launch pad, even as we speak. Uh, Its scheduled launch time was supposed to be at about 5.37 uh, PM Eastern Standard Time. Uh, there was a, a little bit of a foul up in the beginning of that, and there was a there was a hold initially. Uh, that hold was picked up again uh, with about maybe eighteen minutes left in the in, in the launch window. This thing, first off, has got a very tight launch window. There, the, this particular launch has got about an hour's worth. So, if if you don't launch within about an hour of when you're supposed to then pretty much, you know, you've got to go ahead and scrub for the day anyway. Um, we did want go ahead, recycle for a T0 of about 6.30 Eastern Standard Time, and um, something bit us. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that critter exactly was that bit us. Uh, we went ahead, recycled, uh, we got to... Um, a point where we could continue the countdown from uh, a T minus 13 minutes and counting, uh, got into a go, no go for terminal count, uh, passed that with flying colors uh, at the, uh, at the 10 minute point, which is supposed to happen. Everything looked golden. And then about three minutes and 40 seconds into the count, I heard uh, over the, over the net, hold, hold, hold. And I'm not too sure what happened after that. From what I'm able to piece together, and I don't have any information at this time whatsoever, as we record this at about uh, 8.52 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time here on, on Monday night, 
Um, I don't have any official word, but from what I'm able to piece together, there might have been something going going on with, with the particular gantry here. From what I heard, there was some sort of gantry anomaly or uh, what they call the, an arm anomaly. I'm not exactly too sure what the, what uh, what happened there. There might have been a connection issue or, or, or a pressurization line problem because I heard um, over the net, too, um, something to the effect that the first stage was not at flight pressure. So there might have been a line issue between uh, the one of the service lines and uh, and the first stage. There was nothing wrong with the vehicle itself. Vehicle was still on internal power at the time. Uh, the SES satellite, which oddly enough was built by Orbital Sciences, uh, was also ready to rock. It was it was uh, good to go. It was all powered up. Everything looked just fine. And then, well, this. So uh, I'm not exactly too sure at this point what caused the failure. For, uh, for tonight's launch attempt, I do know that we're going to go ahead and we're going to recycle, which is Thanksgiving Day here in the United States, and uh, uh, that will that launch will occur at about uh, 5.38 uh, Eastern Standard Time. So uh, if you're out there um, and you want to go ahead and take a look, uh, that now that is also the uh, earliest available launch time. I don't know if SpaceX is actually going to go ahead and okay that for that time period, but um, I guess we'll soon see. Uh, nothing has been said officially that that's what they're going to shoot for as far as a T zero is concerned. Um, but that's the next available time you could do it. Uh, so. The best advice I have for you, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, is take a look at the uh, SpaceX website and see if there's any official announcement going on or anything along those lines. Um, but right now, I, you folks know about as much as I do. I will say this just as, a, as an addendum to this little story. Uh, in preparation for doing my homework on the launch, I tried to find... Over the weekend, uh, the press kit for the, uh, the for the for the SpaceX SES eight launch, and I went to the SpaceX website and I couldn't find it. it wasn't there in in the press room area or anything. And oddly enough, I had to go to Spaceflight Now, which, by the way, thank you, folks, uh, to go ahead and get the press the press kit for this for this particular launch. Uh, and you know, by the way, again. If you folks are so inclined, take a look. It's a pretty good website, but uh, as far as Spaceflight Now is concerned. But uh, again, folks, thanks for, for posting that because I never would have had the press kit. I went to it this morning, and I was getting some sort of 501 error or something like that or access denied error in the in the press room when I when I hit the link for that for that uh, um, for that. So that again, this is something that you know, they, they have to play just a little bit of catch up on. Um, I, I guess it comes with experience or whatever, but uh, it would be nice to have you know that link pretty much squared away you know it, it, for a launch attempt. But uh, again, we will just soldier on. We'll watch the website. We'll see what uh, what SpaceX had to say about today's little anomaly, and uh, hopefully, we will be geared and ready to go for another launch attempt as soon as possible. And again, that soon as possible right now would be 
Thanksgiving Day at at uh, five thirty eight p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that's that's about all I have as far as tonight's launch launch attempt goes. But uh, um, just kind of scratching my head a little bit. Everything looked fine, and then something bit us. Yeah, I mean, it's always good to see when redundancy works and when your backup systems work and when you scrub. I mean, most people don't like the scrubs, but if it means that the rocket waits a couple days and then launches safely, you do it. But, um, you know, it's good because this is also SpaceX's first Falcon 9 version 1.1 launch out of Florida, and it's going geosynchronous with the SES-8 satellites. So uh, it's a big launch for SpaceX. And, you know, this is big for their commercial endeavors, not just to the space station, but for other satellites. So we'll see what happens. Yes, yeah, so again, it's it's good to see that at least the redundant systems work. It means that the spacecraft was smart enough to figure out and say, hey, I got a problem. Let me stop this and let's, you know, step back, punt and figure out what we need to do to fix this. But it detected something odd. And I don't know where that something odd is right now. I suspect the folks over at Hawthorne do. Uh, And I'm going to go under the pretext that they're going to work that problem and and get things going. But again, it means this is a a big deal. You're absolutely correct. Uh, This is the first flight for... Falcon 9 1.1 at a KSC, and we'll just have to sit back and see what uh, what they uh, what happens here. But uh, again, uh, you know, and this isn't the first time that a that a that a launch has been scrubbed, boys and girls. We've I mean we've been through through this with shuttle. I don't know how many times. And again, it's a testament to to how smart the vehicle is, and. Falcon 1.1 just Falcon 9 1.1 today just said, eh, "I don't feel happy today. I'm going to sit back and let, let's something's just not right here." So it did the smart thing and it did what it was supposed to do. Exactly. And keep in mind, not just you know Falcon 9 1.1, not just shuttle. I can think of very few, if any, rockets that have ever not had at least one launch scrub in their entire history especially of modern ones from, let's say, you know, 1980 to present. Just part of the business. Just part of the business. And I, I'd rather go ahead and uh, – there was something – I'm trying to remember the exact quote. Uh, it, was, it, was by, um, <laughs> it was by one of the shuttle officials. Uh, you know, I'd, you'd, you'd rather go ahead you, – you'd want to – find a problem when you're on the ground and you know, have the problem when you're aloft. And uh, uh, in this case, the uh, the Falcon 9 1.1 was smart enough to keep itself on the ground. And uh, uh, again, we'll just watch, wait, and see what happens on the earliest available window, which is Thursday. And uh, we'll see if they can, uh, they can get the SES satellite uh, back up and, uh, or should I say off the ground and, uh, in its uh, uh, natural habitat. Exactly. And once again, the next planned launch attempt is Thursday, and that is the 28th of November at 5.38 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 10.38 p.m. GMT. Even though GMT doesn't use p.m., you know what I mean. <laughs> Alrighty then, so... 
we're working our way from launches that were supposed to go off to launches that are planned for a little bit into the future. And the next one that we're talking about is ExoMars, which we've talked about in the past and how that is now a European space agency program in cooperation with Russia. But the important part of that is its planned landing in 2016. Part of the spacecraft has a special name, and that is the entry, descent, and landing portion of it. More importantly, who it's named for. And it will be named for Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiarpelli. And I know I'm mispronouncing that name terribly, but I don't speak Italian very well. But it will be named for him, whose contributions were very important in the 1800s, when he was one of the first people to create extremely detailed maps of the Red Planet, especially during its closest uh, approach towards Earth in opposition in 1877. All this from a Space.com article. Now, when he originally looked at them, he called the structures that he saw canali, which is Italian for channels. I know that sounds a little confusing, because to an American speaker, you would think canali. That sounds like canals, which many people did, and many people thought that they were formations created by intelligent life, which, fun fact, as of right now, they're not. It caused a little bit of confusion, but nonetheless, a very important astronomer in terms of Mars, and he will be honored by helping ExoMars make its way down to the surface using its heat shields followed by parachutes as well as thrusters to make it to the surface of Mars. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, so uh, uh, I believe the correct pronunciation is uh, Giovanni Schiaparelli. And, Thank uh, you. No problem. And... Uh, the you you mentioned the the term canali or grooves that's what essentially electrified everybody because canali as you pointed out was translated into well canals which implies intelligence uh years as the years went on Schiaparelli went ahead and created some some very good maps of uh, the Martian surface as he perceived them. Um, but uh, it also inspired another gentleman by the name of Percival Lowell to go ahead and take up Schiaparelli's work after Schiaparelli announced that he was giving up observing Mars due to his uh, uh, failing eyesight. And unfortunately, uh, Percival Lowell went ahead and uh, also tried to create as good a map as 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 uh, Schiaparelli was, but it was loaded with well canals, lots and lots of canals, and that again sort of electrified everybody and just made everybody's imagination run amok. And as uh, Carl Sagan. Uh, in the episode Blues for the Red Planet in the original Cosmos had observed, you've had and look at what you're looking at and really committed to paper and at that, or at least at that period of time. And um, you have to wonder what, you know, if the perception of the individual that's viewing through the eyepiece uh, had anything to do with a lot of what was written in Lowell's notebook because he imagined uh, Mars to be inhabited and sort of these canals were 
sort of last ditch efforts uh, by the civilization in dire need and trying to basically get the uh, water from the polar caps down to the equatorial regions. And they dug this network of canals to go ahead and try to do this and bring the water down to the thirsty inhabitants along the equatorial areas. Well, as we now know, and Sawyer, as you pointed out, uh, that was a little bit more than, (laughs) uh, shall we say, outrageous. And uh, that is just not the case on on the Red Planet today. But Mars, again, uh, has many more other secrets to unlock. And thanks to the work of ExoMars, which is to come, and the work of uh, uh, the other rovers that have preceded it, uh, our rovers, Spirit, Opportunity, and now Curiosity, and soon the Mars 2020 rover, I think all of them are going to work in concert, gathering data, and teach, trying to unlock the, the, the puzzle right now that is indeed the red planet. Exactly. So, it's, you know, obviously some important discoveries and a lot of those areas, you know, around the equator, that's kind of where ExoMars is going to be heading towards. It's going to be a little bit near the equator, kind of around actually where Opportunity landed back in 2004. Um, but interestingly enough, as it goes through the atmosphere, it will be taking atmospheric measurements as well as measurements when it's on the ground. So his work will continue studying the planet, except a little bit closer than I think he could have. Be fun to if, if you could reach across the years and bring Giovanni Schiaparelli forward along with Percival Lowell and see some of these and allow them to see some of these photographs and uh, all the all the work that both that all of these rovers are going to do. So maybe we are seeing it for them. So a salute. Yes, indeed. A salute to Giovanni Schiaparelli. We're going to go from Mars to the moon and from me to Mark. And of course, rather than make it a short and simple story, I'm going to make it a short, complex tale. This started with my interest in plutonium-238. It went on to the China National Space Administration and ended up on the moon. Now, how did we get there? Well, recently there was some news out, uh, thanks to Scientific American, that NASA has canceled work on a radioisotope power system that was intended to help the next generation of spacecraft. Now that makes me sad, but I understand the reasons for it. And just to give you a little point of irritation, I did see another headline from another news source, and the headline said, NASA shelves fuel-efficient tech effectively slashing outer planet exploration. And there couldn't be anything further from the truth in that statement, because the United States will have enough plutonium, plus production that has restarted with the Department of Energy to allow us to send another rover to Mars in 2020 and to complete other missions in the 20s without any need for the added efficiency of these new radioisotope thermal generators would provide. So end of that story. On to the next. The next is that uh, China 
and there's too many things that are just a little controversial for me to try and tell you this whole story, but the the China National Space Administration will soon, as in December, I think, is the projected launch date, and we'll see more about that probably before this article, uh, before this podcast posts. But it looks like China is getting ready to launch a spacecraft to the moon. It's called the, and pardon my pronunciation, it's called the Chang E3. It's going to deploy a lander and a rover, and these are some. The lander itself is a big honking machine. It's two and a half meters per, on a side, uh, four and three quarter meters from one landing gear to the opposite. Fully fueled mass is 3,800 kilograms, and it's capable of delivering a 1,700 kilogram payload to the moon's surface. And what's interesting about it is that they say that the lander and the rover. It, it doesn't appear that they're powered by these radioisotope heating units, but they do they do have solar panels, so that's probably their primary power. But the radioisotope thermal generators are there to keep them warm. Now, of course, the question is, what are they powered by? Is it plutonium-238, or is it some other, you know, heat-generating radioactive isotope that that we, you know, really don't know which one, so there's no point in theorizing about all that. But the uh, the point of all this is that they have got a lander and a rover headed to the moon. This Chang E3 lander is doing something the United States did decades ago, but it does have some new capabilities, some new technologies that NASA doesn't currently have, at least not that are ready to fly. And you know, unlike NASA, they got plans for setting down on the lunar surface, and hopefully they'll share some of their scientific data course there is a wrinkle to this and I'll let Gene mention exactly what the wrinkle is and then I'll give you a little comment on it. Yeah Mark thanks. Uh, I've, I looked at a couple of articles before coming on here when we were in uh, uh, sort of our pre-planning sessions and I noticed that there was a little problem that I'm seeing with uh, our own probe called Laddie. Now, Laddie here was uh, was launched just a few weeks ago from uh, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport over at Wallops Island in Virginia, and uh, uh, it has just been commissioned. It's ready to go, and it's ready to do some science. Now, Laddie's entire mission is to go ahead and study the uh, uh, the extraordinarily tenuous atmosphere of the moon. And the whole idea is to try to get a baseline for an undisturbed atmosphere uh, around the moon. The problem is, from what I've been reading and from what uh, a couple articles I saw, was that the Chinese vehicle could go ahead and disturb those particular readings. And uh, when, I, I, when Mark and I were talking uh, offline here, I was like, I presented that, and I was like, was there any type of uh, uh, connection to that, or was there any kind of rebuttal to that? Because it was a concern of mine. And, uh, well, Mark found something that just said, well, maybe not so fast. Maybe Laddie is in good shape after all. So, Mark, why don't you pick it up from that point? Well, you know, I agree that it would be, in the ideal world, it would be great if Laddie could complete its mission, get all of these baseline readings that they, the scientists really want to get on the lunar exosphere and its mission, and then China's 
lander would arrive on the scene. But it doesn't appear that it's going to happen that way unless there's delays in launch or, you know, this mission uh, going off. An article that I saw that, that gives you a bit of a, a brighter side to things is in policymike.com, an article by Tom McKay. And he talked to uh, John Hopkins University's Applied Physics Lab scientist, Jeff Plessia. And, you know, he commented, too, that there's going to be contamination of the exosphere by propellant of the lander. But he does say that propellant that will be released at these high altitudes from burns as the spacecraft descends and then at a range of altitudes as it gets closer to the surface, Laddie is going to be able to see how the propellant interacts with the lunar exosphere. They will see how it's later removed or distributed and dispersed. And, you know, this is another one of those wonderful things. Man, it would be great if we had cooperation between our agency and the Chinese National Space Agency. Because if we were really cooperating, could coordinate these two missions, you could get some incredible readings. Think of... uh, the amount of observation that went into L-Cross impacting the lunar surface. They had observatories on on good old planet Earth watching that impact. But who knows? I I wouldn't be terribly optimistic to see that change, but it certainly highlights the fact that we do need to have some changes in international cooperation regarding China. So if that isn't a tortured path to try and follow, I don't know what is for a story. Yeah, Mark, it's funny you mentioned... Uh, wanting to go ahead and cooperate with China in in this respect. Well, you're not the only one who uh, has suggested that. You're in some very interesting company there, none other than uh, former well former Apollo astronaut Gene Cernan uh, said essentially the same thing in an uh, AIAA article uh, written by Mark Carreau a few weeks back, and. He had suggested perhaps maybe we should be cooperating with China a little bit more, and his uh, um, his reasoning was that specific lander that you're talking about there, and uh, he he pointed out that this descent stage, as you pointed out, for this little rover is really big, and the theory, at least here in the West is that this isn't just for this particular rover. It seems to be overpowered for the purpose that it really really has, is just being a platform for this rover. Um, The thought is that possibly this particular lander may actually be a prototype for the descent stage of the actual piloted lander, that China wants to use to get to get humans on the moon or get Chinese astronauts to the moon. So uh, the idea that perhaps maybe we should cooperate with China was indeed floated by Gene Cernan and I believe Buzz Aldrin as well in the same article. In fact, uh, Buzz, I think, wanted to go ahead and set up some sort of national uh, commission through the United Nations to you know, cooperate with lunar exploration for the same purpose, Mark, that you were just talking about to sort of, all right, say we're taking some readings, maybe Laddie could do its thing and maybe China could delay it for a little bit, so on, sort of negotiate when we could go ahead and do that. So um, 
you're in very good company. I just thought I would go ahead and point all that out. That, that brings us to the end of round number one. We are now ready to move on to round number two. And, of course, as always, round number two lately seems to be about commercial space. Well, in this case, I guess a space tourist, shall we say. Gene? Thank you, Sawyer. Yeah, well, a specific space tourist that has turned, well, I guess, you know, a foundation member slash now trying to go ahead and get NASA to do something and ain't ready to do. Uh, back around November 20th, uh, just last week, uh, Dennis Tito appeared before the uh, House uh, Subcommittee on Space. And the whole purpose, I believe, of the of the meeting was to make a case for his Inspiration One plan, uh, which has just been revamped and, and redone and so on. Uh, now, the Inspiration, found, Inspiration One Foundation is just that. It's trying to go ahead and get to Mars uh, via private donations. Uh, the whole purpose of Inspiration One is to go ahead and take a, an American crew Male and female. We talked about this a little bit before. Uh, this is going to be a married couple uh, on board a, a small vehicle that is going to go ahead, launch from Earth, and basically circumnavigate Mars, do sort of an Apollo 8 type um, launch profile, but do it around Mars. Uh, the plan is, to, according to what I'm reading here, and this is a, a handout from Inspiration Mars itself, or in, or the Inspiration Foundation, um, they want to go ahead and come within 100 miles of the Red Planet and spin around and just you know, orbit a few times and then blast out of there. Uh, the whole purpose of it is to go ahead and you know try to reinvigorate the U.S. space program. Now, they do have a limited launch window. I believe the launch window that they are shooting for opens up around Christmas 2017 and I think runs through uh, 2018. Um, <laughs> the problem is we're just flat out not ready to do that. Uh, and, but Dennis Tito, during the testimony, and I didn't see the live testimony or the questions, but I did read his opening statement. And in his, in his opening statement, he's basically trying to make the case saying, if the United States doesn't do this, the Russians sure as heck will, or the Chinese will. Well, the problem right now is with that is I think Mr. Tito's argument is flawed. Right now, I don't think any nation has the wherewithal to get to Mars. We just don't have the uh, the equipment. Uh, Russia's got a heavy lift booster in the works. China may also have a heavy lift booster in the works. And, of course, we have the space launch system. Now, during his testimony, uh, Dennis Tito asked uh, members of, of the House for essentially 700 billion, no, 700 million, that's million with an M, folks, um, dollars for the following. He wanted one space launch system to launch what I guess you would refer to as the mothership, which would consist of a... Um, a, a Cygnus Mark II uh, vehicle, 
and uh, for um, for a habitation module. And in the back, a is your ticket home, which would be an Orion capsule. Uh, initially, uh, the the plan called for one of the Bigelow inflatables hooked up to uh, what I think would would have been a Dragon spacecraft, and that stack would go to Mars. Um, but this whole thing would be launched by one SLS. And to get his crew up there, he would ask for one of the commercial crew flights. What I find interesting is that in the in the Inspiration One literature, uh, he's got the CST one hundred as the um, the vehicle, um, which I, I find kind of interesting. They did a lot of a lot of previous stuff has depicted the SpaceX Dragon, so I don't know if if. SpaceX and Tito have had a falling out or whatever, but um, that's a story for another day, and I'm not going to go there. But the whole idea is to get the two crew members up using this commercial crew flight and then disembark from Earth orbit and shoot from Mars in 501 days and come back. Um, right now, we've just got too much... To figure out before we go to Mars, and uh, NASA, in its infinite wisdom, also responded to Mr. Tito and essentially said, eh, "Not so fast, Sparky." Um, Dennis essentially went to the, the the U.S. Congress and tried to turn his Inspiration One mission into a NASA mission. And uh, in fact, the literature, if you take a look at it, if you go to go to the, to the Inspiration One website, um, it, it has NASA logos all over it, uh, all of the all you know the, the vehicles. Uh, so he he's he was really either trying to butter them up or um, or or something along those lines, and it didn't quite work out the way he wanted. Uh, after the testimony, uh, NASA, uh, a NASA uh, spokesman by the name of De David Weaver, who is the associate administrator for um, communications, uh, said the following statement. NASA has had conversations with Inspiration Mars to learn about their efforts and will continue to discuss with them to see how the agency may collaborate in mutually beneficial activities that could complement NASA's space, space, human spaceflight program, space technology, and Mars exploration plans. Inspiration One's Mars proposal schedule is a significant challenge due to life support systems, radiation response, habitats, and the human psychology of being in a small spacecraft for over 500 days. The agency is willing to share technical and problematic expertise with the Inspiration Mars team, but is unable to commit to sharing expenses with them. However, open to further collaboration as their proposals and plans develop for a later mission. Close quote. Wow. Um, that tells me flat out that, um, you know, thank you, but no. Now, 
I I kind of in in preparation for tonight, I, I kind of sat there and I said that took a lot of guts to go ahead and, and and sit in front of Congress and try to turn your vision into a NASA vision. Essentially, Dennis Tito was asking the U.S. taxpayer to pony up seven hundred million dollars to vision a reality. Um, with all due respect, uh, Dennis Tito going to NASA for money. Uh, would be like me going into the nearest homeless shelter and asking these guys to underwrite my next mortgage. NASA barely has enough money to cover the portfolio of missions it currently has. It, it, and for for Dennis to go to Congress and say, hey, fund me, um, <laughs> that was a stretch. And I just did not see that happening at all. Uh, because of the current budgetary constraints that that NASA is under right now, and I don't think Dennis re- really, really made—I don't think he made his case. And judging by NASA's response, it too uh, just—you know—they they said the same thing. They basically said, "You got to make a case here," and you didn't make it. And yeah, we're going to miss this 2017, 2018 launch window. And yeah, I don't think anybody else is going to go ahead and and try to make this launch window either. Um, We're just not ready technologically yet to shoot for Mars. NASA's doing this. Their unspoken goal is to shoot for Mars in the 2030 time time frame. It is going to go for Mars, but they're going to do it in a slow, methodical way. That will try to minimize and mitigate a lot of the risks that are out there in relationship to a human Mars Mars plan. And by the 2030s, we hope we're going to have all this solved. We don't have this solved now. And NASA did the wise thing by telling Dennis Tito and the Inspiration Mars team, and yeah, not so fast. We're not going to pay for this, number one. And number two, there are too many variables in this whole thing uh, that we just don't know about. And to press for this kind of mission this soon, and this is not, this is me now speaking, I think is foolhardy and it's, and it's dangerous. Uh, Do I think this actual mission is going to get off the ground? Heck no. Um, (laughs) And I, I I have the same thing. I have to say the same thing about the Mars one uh, effort as well. Do I think that's going to go off? I doubt it. Uh, for the same reasons we've discussed that one-way trip stuff that we've discussed so many times on this. Um, do I think the Inspiration uh, Mars team has got some valuable things to contribute? Yeah, I sure do. I think they could probably help solve some of these problems. But do I think that the original vision for 2017, 2018 is going to happen? The answer is no, I don't. But I still think that Dennis Tito and his team can make some solid contributions to the actual piloted mission that will fly, hopefully, in the 2030 time frame. I don't know. I mean, I have to agree with you, to be honest, on doubting that it'll make it off the ground. Uh, and most of these privately funded Mars missions, I don't think have any chance of making it to Mars in the next 20 or 30 years. I think that if it's going to happen, it's probably, in my opinion, going to be NASA first, even if that means 
not necessarily 2030, 2035, if we go to an asteroid instead, and then work our way towards Mars. But, you know, and for trying, but I don't think he's ever going to get $700 million to do it. And even if so, I still see so many issues and plans, you know, and flaws with it that will eventually, in my opinion, have it costing more than that and will just lead to some difficult times. Do I hope that these work? Of course. I mean, it's a one-way trip to Mars or sending a couple around to orbit, anything like that. Is that a little absurd? Yeah. But then again, in the 60s, I can guarantee we thought going to the moon was absurd. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm hoping for the best, but not getting my hopes up. Yeah, sorry. He was actually asking for, for, for the SLS. Now, let me get this straight. The Space Launch System is uh, not even – is still in development right now. We're probably going to launch the first one piloted. Um, second one will be piloted, but they're going to be – launch four years count them one two three four years apart and under nasa's current budget uh the the sl can only afford to launch every four years so you know asking for one of those that's uh, you know I, I hate to say the say this asking for the moon but that's what essentially dennis tito is asking for but that's part of what for the I'm U.S. Saying. taxpayer. Yeah, exactly. Is that you know he was, he was asking to foot the bill, right? And that's part of what I'm hinting at is the fact that you know if anyone's going to be doing it, it's going to be NASA, and I don't think NASA's going to be willing to you know say, oh yeah, sure, you know SLS going to Mars, yeah, when they don't even know where their SLS is going yet, and like you said, the launch rate is nowhere near as large as it would need to be for it to make it to Mars anytime. Yes, or exactly. And the, the, the other thing, the, the other issue with that, I don't think it's just going to be just NASA. I think this, this, this Mars flight is going to turn into an international, the same way the international space station is. Um, it's, it's a good cooperative effort. I don't know if it's going to save any money along the line but indeed it will it will essentially have a lot of nations contributing to it and i think that's the way this is the, the eventual mars mission that we will fly is gonna go but is and i you know oddly enough i actually do think that missions like dennis tito's are going to go ahead and make some kind of technological contribution to to the actual effort that we're going to fly i'm not dismissing him believe me but i'm dismissing the fact that this thing's going to launch in the 2017 2018 time frame our technology just ain't ready right like i said i don't even think it's going to happen by 2030 or 2045 maybe but you know, we'll see. And if you want more information on his um, mission, his plans, we talked about this back earlier this year on episode 508 called Rovers and Couples Seeing Red. So give that a listen back. So next it comes to me. And this is a story I have to admit that I didn't find out on my own. Uh, for this story, I have to give credit where credit is due Mark Wilson, who posted this on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash talkingspace. 
And as he said, quote, anyone who wins a gold medal at the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia on February 15th will have a piece of the Chelyabinsk meteorite embedded into the medal. That's right. February 15th, 2012 was the day the Chelyabinsk meteorite soared in to Russia and cell phone and dash cam cameras across the area captured the amazing brightening of it and then the scary after effects of it, which was quite spectacular. And now pieces of it have been found. And they are apparently being placed inside the gold medals of any that have been won on February 15th, being the one-year anniversary of it. Uh, so that will go to seven athletes. So only seven athletes will actually have that. And that will be set to be awarded to the winner of the men's 1,500-meter speed skating, women's 1,000-meter and men's 1,500-meter short track, women's cross-country skiing relay, men's K-125 ski jump, and the women's super giant slalom. And so seven different events will be going seven different gold medals with a piece of space in them. I know last week we talked about, I know the other week we talked about, you know, the Olympics and how it's a publicity stunt. I think this is pretty cool and not necessarily just a publicity stunt, but, you know, a piece of Russian history as is the Olympics. It's a tribute, sir, a tribute to those who unfortunately got hurt and badly hurt. There were no no fatalities as far as I know uh, in that event, but um, it caused some, some havoc uh, on the ground over there. Uh, I don't know how many uh, injuries overall there were, but they were, the, the, the amount was significant, and we didn't see that darn thing coming. So uh, it, it's just to to put in the plug for um, for an organization I'm flat out supporting uh, the the B612 Foundation. Um, I you know I can't <laughs> I can't say enough that the number one I like the idea uh, of the tribute um, for that event. Number two, it kind of puts the idea of uh, asteroids and detecting what's what's out there in the minds of uh of people so it gets it gets that message out too that we have to be a little bit mindful of what's going on out there and and trying to figure out what's really out there and what's coming at us so possibly maybe we can do something about it and prevent uh issues that happen just like what happened in the Ural Mountains uh back last February so uh, applause to the um, uh, to the folks that organized this, and applause to the folks that came up with the idea because uh, it's a fitting tribute. And congrats to those who win such a you know rare medal. You know, gold Olympic medals are rare as is, let alone gold Olympic medals with piece of a probably the most memorable and historic meteorite fall of current times. So, you know, congrats to them, and thank you again to Mark Wilson for posting that on our Facebook page. And again, if you have any other cool stories that you want us to discuss, please send them to us. Alrighty then, so we are now going to finish off round number two with Mark, and uh, kind of a tie-in to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, but I'll let him explain it. Mark? Okay, hold on to your hats, and here we go. Thanks to NASA.gov for this information. 
and raise your hand if this is how it starts out raise your hand if in a math class you ever said when will I ever use this in my life okay headline of this and raise mine too Headl okay it's unanimous headline here is algorithms plus an FA 18 jet this is a formula equals vital testing for SLS flight control system and you say to yourself what okay what they are doing is taking a NASA FA 18 research jet heck of a toy to go uh, do research in huh but they're taking it and they have instrumented it and they are developing algorithms which is from complex step-by-step -step equations to make this FA-18 fighter jet fly like the Space Launch System heavy lift rocket. So here's some young engineers, some young people that are developing some software that's going to fly in space. It's going to make the SLS fly better. Now the thing that's really unique here is that they're developing this adaptive control system such that as the rocket is in flight and it encounters turbulence or different conditions. You remember at launches we see that uh, we hear mention of well they're launching a weather balloon and the winds aloft are this and the weather conditions are this and it's outside of limits and we'll have to scrub. Well that may well still happen with this but what they're going to be able to do is have a rocket that in flight adapts and responds to conditions rather than having conditions sent to it on the pad to where the software tells the rocket okay here's what's going to happen at such and such an altitude make these control changes to compensate for it they're pre-programmed essentially well this software is going to allow the SLS to respond um, the in-flight to dynamic changes in the environment that it's flying through. Now what I think is a really cool part this adaptive augmenting controller is they have to test fly it. So you got some poor test pilot that is going out there and flying an F-18 and making it go like a rocket. Can you imagine the conversation? Friend of the pilot says, "Hey, what you doing today?" And he says, ah, "I got to go fly that jet again, and we're going to imitate a rocket." Now, these test flights are—they started November 14th, so just uh, a little over a week ago. They have five flights planned, and each flight has more than a dozen tests that are being conducted. The jet's in the air for 60 to 90 minutes. The algorithms are tested in different scenarios for up to 70 seconds at a time. Now they're going to have 20 test cases. Some simulate abnormal com conditions like higher thrust than anticipated. I'd like to ride on that one. Or the presence of gusts that I already mentioned and see how the algorithm responds. They're going to take the data from it, go back to Marshall Space Flight Center, analyze the data, refine it, and continue testing. Now this software that they're working to develop and, and complete is going to be flying on the SLS schedule for 2017. 
and I just think this is an extremely cool use. You wonder what it what does NASA need, uh, you know, test aircraft and test pilots for? Well, they need them to pretend they're a rocket in this case. So, and I would also like to mention something that I just saw. As a side note, today, November twenty fifth, twenty thirteen, is the sixtieth anniversary of the first Mach two test flight. The pilot was none other than Scott Crossfield. He was a pilot for National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA, NACA, and he was the first human to fly faster than twice the speed of sound. He was in a Douglas D558-2 Skyrocket, and of course this was at Edwards Air Force Base. So, happy anniversary, and I uh, thought that would kind of go along with one of our previous stories here tonight. Oh boy, I'm I'm just trying to picture the pilot of that that uh, F-18, Mark. Yeah, what kind of did? Oh well, we just had to go ahead and pretend we were a rocket ship, huh? Oh wow. Uh, again, it's it's aeronautics and astronautics sort of tied in together, helping each other out and helping to go ahead and 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 create this this new this new program and this new ambitious vehicle that we hope is going to go ahead and take us well beyond earth and uh well beyond out to uh to other places in the solar system and be a genuine workhorse not just for the human side of the house but hopefully we'll be able to get you know larger payloads up there uh and uh and and larger telescopes perhaps to areas of the of the solar system that we're just dreaming about right now. So, uh, again, incredible work. And uh, just just as an aside, uh, not only was was Scott Crossfield a pretty darn good pilot, he was also a really, real, real gentleman. I I had the honor of meeting him uh, a while back ago in the nineteen nineties at an event, and uh, just I mean, you want to talk about the quintessential gentleman? That that was Scott Crossfield. So. Uh, Good tailwinds to you, sir. Thank you for everything you did. And just to wind up this FA-18 story, uh, they say they're flying similar trajectories with the airplane that they would have with a rocket, but they have to actually slow down the ro- rotational dynamics of the aircraft to match the maneuvering characteristics of a heavy launch vehicle. And also, one of the reasons that we want to see this work done on an aircraft, it allows for low-cost, quick scheduled tests that can be repeated many times in order to gain confidence in these advanced control technology and it gives them some very unique advantages over other types of control system validations that they've done before. So, go NASA! Yes, indeed. And after hearing that story, I realized I need to find a new job. Alright then, so, before we wrap things up, do want to mention one last thing, and that is a special anniversary slash birthday. I guess we could say happy birthday then to the International Space Station, which just recently turned 15 years old on November 20th, which was also the date of the launch of the first piece of the International Space Station, the Russian Zarya module, which a few weeks later would then be met up by the first piece of the U.S. part of the station, and would begin the infrastructure that we now know today as the ISS. Since then, it is now the size of a 
United States football field in width. It is absolutely huge. Multiple parts, 16 different countries, all making this amazing international cooperation happen, which, keep in mind now, has been continuously manned for 13 years. Another record. A lot of good stuff going on with the International Space Station. Happy birthday to it. And if I might suggest a video that was released by the Canadian Space Agency, which I will link to in the show notes, which does a great job of covering the the building of the International Space Station over the last 15 years and how much actually went into it. Not just Canada's role, but as but everyone's. Yes, Sawyer, again, bravo, and this is another reason why the International Space Station is there. It is not only trying to answer the questions that we had talked about in the the previous story on how to get to Mars and so on. It's the linchpin for so much more. There's so much research going on on the ISS that not a lot of people are aware of, and I, I think that a lot of the spin-offs that are going to come from the ISS and a lot of the research that's going to come from the ISS. I don't think we've even I don't think we've even scratched the surface yet with this ve- with this vehicle. I mean, the thing weighs about a million pounds. It's easily visible at night. So I I'd, I'd suggest that you you go to uh spotthestation.nasa.gov if you want to see it over over your uh over your location. Just type it in, you'll get alerts and in, in an email and or wherever else you you want to get these alerts um it is an incredible facility and we are just now getting into it and really really scratching we've just really started scratching the surface and trying to really really figure out what this vehicle can do so happy birthday to you international space station and we look forward to a lot more have to say that was one of the better ideas that the U.S. and international partners came up with. Yes, indeed. It took a long time for it to get there, though, with a couple of, you know, redesigns originally being Space Station Freedom and then making its way to the International Space Station and then finally launching and then finally being crewed and then built all the way through with then the Columbia disaster delaying building and it finally being completed, supposedly, in 2011 with more pieces still set to be added. It's amazing and the science that's being done is phenomenal, and, you know, diss it all you like, but the International Space Station is an amazing asset. And I believe so, too. It's getting a new module just next month, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the Russians are, are putting in a new uh, a new uh, docking port. Uh, so, again, uh, just not exactly finished yet, but, uh, uh, again, hats off. Oh yeah, happy birthday again to the International Space Station and to everyone involved. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, and happy Thanksgiving to everybody here in the United States. And uh, just a really quick shout-out to uh, Mr. John McKnight, who's been a really good uh, uh, follower of spaceflight and and Lego engineer extraordinaire a lot of his little designs have become really good uh, uh you know Lego pieces and or or Lego uh, sets out there uh he's having some health problems right now but uh uh John wishing you a, a speedy recovery hang in there buddy oh yeah uh great person so speedy recovery 
And thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. It's been fun. Appreciate it, gentlemen. See you soon. We will see you soon, and we hope you'll be back then. Until then, though, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.